Thank you, Zoe. Uh, we are going to be starting a series this morning. Uh, we're we're going to be walking through our covenant. Uh, now, this is a suggested thing that we're doing together, that we're trying to revitalize membership and, and rethink it. Um, so uh, that's kind of what we're talking about for the next little while, and I want to bring people up to date on what we're talking about as we do that. Now, um, so what I'm going to be doing over the next uh, number of weeks is just going through what our covenant looks like. So if you want to know where we're going to go next week, you can just read that covenant document. We can email it to you as well. And, uh, and it's going to be online as well if you, if you need to look at it there. Um, and we're going to go through that. So um, I want to warn you, though, that I'm preaching through this document, which is scripturally based, but it just makes for some weird divisions. And, and as I was trying to figure out how to plan this sermon, this sermon could be 15 minutes long, or it could be seven hours long. And I figured that somewhere closer to the 15 minutes was going to be acceptable for all of us as humans this morning. So if I end abruptly, like, don't be alarmed by that. I've just been like, this. there's no good place to stop, so I'm just going to stop. But, uh, but uh, so I'm a little bit concerned about that, but, uh, but just so you know what's going on. So, um, this is what we're talking about. This is the first part of our, of our covenant. And these are not, I want to be really clear, just because they're up here and I don't have them in italics doesn't mean that these are biblical words. I will make a distinction. These are words that the elders have come up with together about what we're trying to do together. So what we say is not gospel. We're human beings. We're trying to follow the Lord as best we can. But uh, I just want to say that like, uh, the, and, and, we, and we believe that we listen to the Lord as we wrote this, but there's can be mistakes and typos and weirdness, and, and sometimes we can say things incorrectly. So this is what we're starting with. A covenant is a promise by which we obligate ourselves to one another in such a way that the obligation of one party is not dependent on the faithfulness of the other. This covenant includes a statement of faith, a commitment to biblical truth, the commitments of this church to its members, the commitments of covenant members to Disciples Church. Though the covenant does define the relationship between members in the local church, it is first and foremost a promise made to God as a commitment to his glory and his bride, the church. Okay, so this is kind of what we're starting with. And, and what I want us to get to this morning is just what are we talking about when we talk about covenant? Because this is a weird, sometimes as Christians we can start to use weird spiritual words for things. And we're like, oh, this is going to clarify our relationship together because we're using a weird spiritual word. And it's less clear than if we just used the word contract, you know. Um, uh, but, but I do think that the word covenant has some, some meaning for us that we can walk through. So there are at least one, at least two, possibly 12 covenants in Scripture, depending on which scholars you ask. But, but there are... Uh, but there are at least, these are ones that pretty much everybody agrees on. So there, there's six specific deals that God makes with his people throughout the Bible, okay? And we start with the Noachic covenant, which is God's covenant with Noah that he's not going to again destroy the world by flood, okay? So that's the first kind of covenant that God makes with people. It's arguable that there's one in Genesis as well, but let's just, <laughs> before we get too nerdy, okay? So... The first is the Noachic Covenant, and you, so some of you would be familiar with that story. God says, I'm not going to destroy the world again by flood, and then he seals his covenant with a rainbow, right? He's placed his bow in the sky. Interestingly, 
bow in that language was not like a, 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 a beautiful thing that you would tie, but but it's symbolic of of an arrow, a bow and arrow, like a, the weapon being pointed at the heavens rather than being pointed at the earth. That was the symbolism of that. So. Um, the Abramaic covenant, and we're going to be looking at this in a little bit, de a little, little bit of detail later on, but God's covenant with Abraham when he begins to form his people. Uh, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant that God makes when he inaugurates the Torah, which is basically the entire book of Deuteronomy that he does before the people enter the promised land. So we have this, this Mosaic covenant, and then we have a priestly covenant, which is uh, a little bit, uh, little bit more, uh, less concrete according to scholars but basically there's this priestly covenant through the book of Leviticus about who was going to remain in front of the the throne and then we have the Davidic covenant which is uh from 2nd Samuel 7 where God makes a deal with David that one of your descendants will always be on the throne before me forever okay that's 2nd Samuel 7 and then we have the new covenant which we do every single week where where Jesus brings in this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out the forgiveness of sins and these are all ways of solidifying God's agreement to be good and to restore his people, okay? These are all refreshers of the same commitment that God has to, to be on the side of his creation, okay? So this is the ultimate commitment that God makes that, that he has created us, he has not abandoned us, and he is going to be working for our, on our side and for our restoration. So these are ways of solidifying that. And there's many different kinds of, so those are all agreements that God made with people, but the word covenant just describes a contract. And there are many different contracts that you can have, and, 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 and we can see that there's these, the, the, the kind of contracts that we see throughout the Bible and in our own lives, we can understand all of these, that there's family contracts. Marriage is at its heart a covenant or a contract. It's a deal that we make together about how we're going to behave. Um, there are friendship contracts. We see uh, covenants. We see this between David and Jonathan, right? Where David and Jonathan make an agreement with each other, sealed in blood, that they were going to look after one another, okay? We, there are business uh, covenants as well that, like, if you provide, we see David do this with, uh, with, with the king of Hiram and of Tyre when he says, you bring us wood, we will pay you such and such for the wood with which we will build the temple. That's an intra, you know, that's a business contract. And then we have this fourth category of God covenants, which are very, very different, where, where God makes a deal with his people. So the word covenant in Hebrew is berit which just means to cut. So it's interesting. The, 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 at its core, uh, when we talk about, we the verb that they use actually in the Old Testament is to cut a covenant. We would, we would cut a cut, right, it, it, it is what it looks like. But, the, but that's kind of what they're talking about is they, 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 uh, they cut a contract one with another. And it's interesting how they symbolize this. But, so, but there's another thing that we need to understand as well, and this is going to be important for us as we begin to look at the God covenants. There's a spectrum, in addition to these different varieties of covenants, there's a spectrum on which a covenant is bilateral or unilateral, okay? So bilateral at its basis means you behave in such and such a way, then I behave in such and such a way, right? The easiest way for us to understand a bilateral covenant is through this business arrangement, right? So you give us X amount of, of gold shekels, and we will give you X amount of, of 
of timber to uh, to build the temple, right? That's a bilateral arrangement. If you do not send us the, the gold shekels, then we do not send you the, the timber, right? We get that, bilateral arrangement, okay? Um, but a family uh, or a marriage covenant is really quite different in terms of its bilateral versus unilaterally, right? Because there's an agreement that I will be faithful to you as long as I live. And both members of that covenant make that to each other. But the faithfulness of one ought not to depend on the faithfulness of the other, right? Like if, if you break faith, if, if someone... It breaks faith in a marriage co covenant. If someone commits adultery, then that doesn't give me the right to then go commit adultery as well, right? So it's it's a little bit different on the spectre, spectrum of unilateral-bilateral. There are bilateral, bilateral commitments, but those need to be held up unilaterally. Does that make sense? I hope so. Anyway, that's where, right? So... One, the breaking of the, so in a, in a completely bilateral, I should have put it, I should have made a Jahari window is what I should have done. I should have, anyway, I'll get a whiteboard for next time. But if an, if an arrangement is completely bilateral, if one half of that is broken, then the, then the entire thing quits, right? Whereas on, if it's completely on the unilater unilateral side, there is no expectation on one of the parties. One party decides to hold it up. Um, a marriage fits right here in the middle where there are commitments and expectations on both sides, but both of them have to hold up their end of the bargain regardless of the behavior of the other one, okay? So we start to see how this bilateral versus unilateral thing. Now, we're going to see these kind of, what kind of covenants we're talking about as we begin to enter into Scripture. Because this is, we're, in Genesis chapter 15, God makes covenant with Abraham. And he does it in a very interesting way that I think is going to tell us a lot about what God expects from us, what we can expect from the Lord, and how this affects how we ought to, what we are able to and ought to expect from one another. Okay, so this is Genesis chapter 15. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now this is an important word for Abram to get at this point because in Genesis chapter 14, he had just gotten into a massive fight, okay? He had gotten into a massive war with a bunch of different kings around and he had freed his nephew Lot who had been taken prisoner uh, by these other people. So he, so Abram wins a great war, and then he meets Melchizedek, a priest uh, in the, of the Most High God. We don't know that much about Melchizedek, but we'll leave that alone for now. He ties to him 10% of everything that he owns, and now in the midst of that, he's still sort of surrounded by enemies, even though he's had this great victory. And in the midst of this, the word of the Lord comes to Abram, and a vision says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your sword, shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childish? <laughs> I remain, there's a little bit Freudian there. I remain childish. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. I think this is very interesting for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to stop and kind of step outside the concept of covenant to just talk about this very briefly. It's okay to get a word from the Lord that you don't understand. 
Some people think that if I get something, an affirmation, or if I have some sort of inclination that God is telling me something, but it can't possibly be true, don't discount that so quickly. So the Lord is capable of infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Therefore, it's quite natural that the God of the universe would call you or give you a vision for something that seems completely beyond what you could ever imagine and something that seems beyond your capabilities and something that seems to be beyond your resources, okay? So it's okay that that happens. This happens with Abram at this moment. God gives him a promise, and Abram's first, province, first response to the promise of God isn't, oh, great, his first response to the promise of God is, but, right? So it's okay to have that uh, God recognizes that that's within us. So he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And this is a big thing in the, in the, ancient, in, in the time of, uh, of ancient Israel. And it's still a big deal now, but even though less so. But then it would, if he did not have a family line then his legacy disappears. And that's the way that they understood it at the time. If there was no one to hand down, a family member, a blood relative for which he, to which he could hand down his estate, then what was the point of anything that he was building? The only way that they really understood eternal life in the Old Testament was through long life on your own and handing your legacy down to those who came after you. So this is why this is such a big concern for Abram. And then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, poor Eliezer of Damascus, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Again, it's okay to ask God to be like, okay, I feel like you're calling me to do something. How is this accomplished? Right? It's okay to say, like, I don't understand how this works right now. Please tell me how to get there. How can I gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, this is very fascinating, because in the ancient world, if Abram wanted to make a deal, some sort of covenant with the king of Sodom or the king of Canaan or any of the kings that are around, the way that they would have inaugurated that contract, their signing of it, because they weren't a, liter a written word people. They didn't sign contracts. They didn't send people PDFs, and then you had to like sort of try and make your signature on an iPad with your finger. Has anyone tried to do that? That's, nobody can do that. Your signature looks nothing. Anyway, but they didn't do that. So the way that they would inaugurate contracts was in blood. And the way that they would get the blood was from animals, and they would cut the animals in half, and the two partners would walk together hand in hand, or how, how so, <laughs> okay, so this is, a, um, I'm just going to tell you, because there's no other better way to tell us. Hand in hand, they would walk together, or if they really wanted to turn up the temperature, uh, the men would walk together holding onto each other's private parts, because... That was a way, I'm not joking about that, that's a real thing, that was a way of guaranteeing your word 
on the descendants of your... So, anyway, I'm not trying to be crude. It was just the world in which they lived. So they would cut the animals in half, and they would walk between them together, hand in hand or whatever, and, uh, and that's the way that they would inaugurate the covenant, the, the covenant. It would be written in blood. It would be written on their feet. It would be written on the commitment of what they did together. So Abram does this, and he's setting up that they're going to make an arrangement. And what Abram is doing is he's saying this. is like, okay, God has promised me these things. And before I walk through this, he is going to tell me what I have to do in order to hold up my end of a bilateral contract in order that God will follow through on giving me descendants as many as the seashore. But as the sun was, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. This is interesting. God gives him a brief history, and some editors believe that this came afterwards, but let's leave that aside for now. God gives him a history of what's about to happen. This is not going to be all rosy, but, but he tells him what's going to happen over the next couple hundred years and what's going to happen to his descendants. Now, this is, you can understand why this might be difficult for Abram to grasp, because right now, how many descendants does Abram have? Zero. And God is telling them that like, in 400 years, your descendants will, will return here in four generations. God's, ta- like, God's talking about him about things that he can conceive, he, he can barely conceive. But I want to look at this passage really, really closely, and I want us all to look at this and say, how many things does Abram have to do in this passage? What are the requirements for Abram here? Are there any requirements for Abram? No. Oh, go back one. Whoops. No wonder. There we go. Are there any requirements for Abram here? There aren't. These are all things that God said, I'm going to do this. Just so you know, don't get discouraged if, uh, over those 400 years, but just so you know, this is the way it's going to go down. There are no instructions for Abram here. There's nothing for him to hold up his end of the bargain. And then this happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is the, the symbol of God himself walking between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Who passes through the pieces? God passes through the pieces. Does Abram pass through the pieces? No. God does on his own. And in that way, he makes covenant with Abram. And there is no... This is a completely unilateral covenant that God is making with Abram. Everything hinges on the actions of God and on his faithfulness. 
There is nothing Abram can do to add to or take away from this, from this contract that the Lord has made. This is a promise that God has made that hinges on his own faithfulness. And God has demonstrated to Abram by, wa- by following the, the, the conventions of, of contracts of their time, by walking through that on his own, saying, I am binding myself to this, is what God says to Abram. He is binding himself to this completely unilaterally. This is in no way dependent on the behaviors of uh, uh, on the behaviors of Abraham. This is a completely unilateral covenant. So, and this is fascinating as well. And so, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to. This is where the the sermon part kind of ends, but it bleeds into the 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 the, the preparation for the table part. So. If you're wondering if it's going to be the the lines are a little bit weird, um, that's what's happening right now. So, so we have this unilateral covenant that God makes with Abram, where He says, "I'm going to do all of this, and all of this will happen to you," and He signifies it by passing through, uh, by passing in between these animals in a way that that Abram wasn't expected to. So let's jump forward to the next covenant that makes a big difference in our lives. Because when Jesus comes and he's gathered with his, his, his uh, when he's reclined actually with his disciples and, and he gathers them for the last supper, he says, he, break, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my body torn in half for you. There's a symbolism that begins to echo here where he says, this is my body torn into pieces, laid aside, broken for you. And then he says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink it. The blood that is in between these pieces, I'm giving to you. And then Jesus, in his death, passes through that broken body and shed blood. In a way that we don't, we're invited to, but Jesus walks through that on his own. And is resurrected on his own and makes a new covenant with us that is also completely unilateral as well. This covenant this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So when we start to talk about covenanting together, we recognize primarily that the first thing that we all recognize as we agree about the kind of life that we're going to lead together is that we are the beneficiaries of a unilateral covenant that God has made with the world. That in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus walks through the broken pieces, walks through the blood in ways that we couldn't, and guarantees to us reconciliation and and life abundant and life eternal. We are the beneficiaries of a completely unilateral covenant that does no way depend on our behavior, in no way depends on our ability to manufacture righteousness, in no way depends on our ability to, to, to donate or give back to God something beyond what he has on his own. It's a completely, so this frames the kind of relationships that we have with each other. Because if we individually recognize that we are the beneficiaries of a completely unilateral contract, that changes the way that we relate to one another. Because I don't need you to give something back to me 
if I have already been given everything by God. I don't need you to give something back to me if I have already been given everything in the life, death, resurrection, and sacrifice of Jesus. And that frames the way that we covenant with one another. So when we covenant with one another, we can do so with a less expectation of each other. We can do so with less dependence on, on each other. We can do so in such a way that I can be faithful to you even if you are not faithful to me because we recognize that God's faithfulness has benefited us in ways that we could not possibly understand. So that is the beginning of our contract together. To recognize that we are the complete and 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 we are the complete beneficiaries of a completely unilateral contract that God is doing everything on our behalf in order to maintain His faithfulness. So as we gather at this table, I ask that you would remember that. Because we, one of the things that we do at this table is we remember until he we remember until he comes again, and what we remember is that this body was broken for us in order to set up the contract for which we could pass through. That this blood was shed for us in order that 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 we might completely benefit from from God's side of this unilateral contract. We 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 participate this remembering a, that that we do not give anything to God, but yet He has given everything over. Over to us. So how can we not respond in love and in joy and in thanksgiving because of what he has done? So as we come to this table, I ask that you take a moment, take a moment in silence to prepare yourself, prepare your heart, recognizing to whom you come, that we come to Jesus whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us, and recognize the, the, and, 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 gra- and ask that the Holy Spirit give us gratitude for the completely unilateral gift that was given us in this sacrifice. Let's uh, take a moment in prayer and silence together.